Talk to my friend Drew Allen. And I'll tell you what, he's a tough guy. A millennial conservative. I've, I've become a big fan of One your writing. One of the great young thinkers of our time. Appreciate his opinion. Conservative Drew Allen. As die-hard conservative. to this guy for wisdom. We've all got a hero here, and her name is U.S. District Judge Catherine Mizell. She is the district judge out of Florida that ruled that the Biden administration's mask mandate for public transportation and air travel violated the Administrative Procedural Act. And immediately what happened, immediately. So she rules against the Biden administration, against the CDC, who sought to extend the mask mandate on planes, for example. She strikes it down. And immediately, every single airline in the country does what? They get rid of the mask mandate. Immediately. They couldn't do it and make the announcement fast enough. They all said, all right, we're not requiring masks on flights anymore. That's what, that's, where, that's what they wanted for a long time. That's what the American people wanted. Look, they would not be doing this if it wasn't what their customers wanted. I can't tell you how many people, how much business these airlines have lost just because of this mass mandate. Now, a lot of you are probably saying, whatever, I don't care. I've been traveling. I've been wearing my mask. But there are many people out there who haven't gotten on a plane unless they absolutely had to. But I'm saying there are people who've made alternate arrangements, who've driven instead of going on a plane because they didn't want to sit there and wear a mask anymore. And so this judge comes in and says, all right, enough of this crap. And the Biden administration, they say they're reviewing it. Uh, but so far, they haven't mounted any kind of assault. They seem to have accepted it. In fact, the TSA, uh, they're, they're complying with this now, with this judge. But the Democrats are so out of touch, so out of touch. Still, they have to just dig themselves a deeper and deeper grave. They just do. Saki came out. I mean, obviously, the court decision means that the CDC's public transportation masking order is no longer effective. It's kaput. It's gone. And nonetheless, Jin Psaki still had to add that this was a disappointing decision. And in fact, she says, while the CDC continues recommending wearing a mask on public transit, the administration still recommends that people wear masks. How out of touch can you be? It's no wonder Voters are fleeing the Democrat Party. On Sunday, as a matter of fact, Chuck Todd, right? Chuck Todd. Um, you know who he is, right? He does meet, meet the press on Sunday morning. And, you know, the difference between me and Chuck is that, well, my good looks are only matched by my, my, my great wit and intelligence. And in Chuck Todd's case, his ugly looks, unfortunate appearance is only matched by his unfortunate lack of intelligence. So that's the difference in me and Chuck. But Chuck goes out there, he has a bunch of panelists on his show, right? And, and here we go again. I mean, the shellacking that's going to greet the Democrats in the midterms, well, we're getting closer and closer to that imminent day. And it's not like Joe Biden's poll numbers have been surging, it's not like any of this is news. They continue to report on this like they're flabbergasted. And, and what I'm talking about is the fact that people don't like the Democrat Party anymore. 
the Biden administration's not popular. In fact, voters are starting to peel away from Joe Biden. And what was of particular concern to Chuck Todd and his panel on Sunday's Sunday mornings Meet the Press was, well, a new poll shows that voters under 35 and Hispanic voters, well, they're the ones that are really moving away, running in the opposite direction of the Democrat Party. And of course, this is just more disastrous news for the congressional Democrats this November. Now, a few poll quotes from what Todd says here. It's astonishing that they, they, they never, it's kind of like Kamala Harris when she goes to the border searching for the root cause and she just never seems to search for it, never seems to find it. These people are simply making observations somehow without digging deeper, without placing blame on Democrats. It's like they're oblivious. They're just so arrogant, so condescending that they can't even comprehend how this could be taking place. And you'll hear some of, well, the enlightening responses or explanations from Chuck Todd here. I'm not going to play the, the audio. I'm just going to read some pull quotes from the, the segment. He says, there's one demographic group I want to single out, and it's voters under 35. And he notes how, quote, they have never experienced inflation in their lifetime. And this is a point he continues to make, which is bizarre, frankly, to me. Uh, he seems to be pointing out that simply because we haven't suffered inflation before, we're, we're placing some undue blame on the Biden administration. It's like we shouldn't be reacting to inflation like we are. I mean, the Democrat policies are responsible for inflation, responsible for soaring gas prices, responsible for the border crisis. But obviously, the economy is the biggest problem for most Americans because it doesn't discriminate. Uh, I mean, you can live in, I guess, Beverly Hills, for example, and escape crime. But I, I, I guess my point is the most widespread economic catastrophe out there is inflation. It's hurting everyone. Everyone, no matter where you live, who you are, everyone's experience, experiencing it. And so Todd says, look at these numbers here. Right now, 82% of the public thinks the economy is only fair or poor. Adults under 35, it's 87%. Now, I don't know who... <laughs> I mean, so 82% of the public thinks the economy is only fair or poor. Who are the 18% out there that think the economy is doing great? The Twitter employees, I guess? Those people getting overpaid to do censorship? I, I, I just can't fathom who these people are that think the economy is doing really well. Most certainly Democrats and their billionaires, I suppose. Chuck Todd, I guess. Maybe Chuck Todd, he thinks the economy is doing great because he's still getting paid. But anyway, that, that's, that's, I mean, so he's shocked. He's shocked. Here's his ex explanation. He's trying to contextualize how these numbers have gotten so bad, right? So Chuck Todd is sitting here wondering, how is it possible that 87% of adults under 35 think the economy is only fair or poor? How is it possible that 100% of Americans don't think that the economy is amazing? Well, here's his stupid analogy. So he noted that voters under 35 years old are used to life when there's a new gadget out. 
Well, in six months, it will be cheaper, not more expensive. This is a whole different world. Very odd. So, 30, voters under 35 years old were used to an iPhone coming out, I guess he's saying. And we wait to buy it because we know it's going to be cheaper in six months. But now we're faced with a new reality, which is every day we wait, everything's going to be more expensive. And this is a whole different world. So what, what is Chuck's point? I, I, I'm really missing it here. Are we not supposed to be upset? Are we not supposed to be frustrated? That inflation is here? That gas is going to be more expensive tomorrow than it was today or yesterday? That that is the new norm under the Democratic Party? What are we, how are we supposed to respond to that? I don't understand. But see, they don't care about why. They don't care about why. And frankly, I don't think the Democrats are capable. Well, I know what their plan is going to be, and I'll get into it later. But the, the Democrats aren't going to change their policies. They're not going to admit that they did anything wrong. They can't do that. They can't do that. So what they're going to do is, again, they're just going to try and create issues create outrage, you know, whether it's abortion, they're going to try and and just stir up as much division as they can before the midterms to get out the vote. They're lurking for that issue. They don't have it yet. And it's not determined because a lot of things are going to change circumstantially between then and there. One thing I suggested is healthcare. They're going to accuse the Republicans of, of threatening to well, basically they're going to say, if you don't vote for Democrats, Republicans are going to take your health care away and you're all going to die in the streets. Um, This is the kind of insanity we're going to hear, though, going forward. It's not going to be rational, nor is it going to be true. But the pitch is just going to be, look, Democrats are better than any Republican. If you think things are bad bad now, I mean, uh, and look, the the most deranged leftist voters who are totally indoctrinated, who just refuse to see reality in any way whatsoever, they're just this, this indoctrination is just taken over their minds like poison. And they're beyond salvation, I guess. These are the types of people who would vote for Adolf Hitler over Donald Trump. I'm very serious about that. They would ver- vote for, for you know, a Xi, you know, if they could, over Donald Trump. The point is, anybody is better than Republicans or Donald Trump in their minds. That's what the media has created, this image. So anyway, PBS NewsHour chief correspondent in the same interview in the panel here, Anna Nawaz, Amna Nawaz, Well, she described how important the under 35 vote is to Democrats. You're talking about one of the key groups that not only helped Democrats win back control of Congress, but uh, I got propel Biden into the White House. Anyway, so she's saying 35 and, you know, people under 35, they're they're substantially, they're really important. They're 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 the group that helped give us Congress, Democrats that is, and put Biden in the White House. It's not really, by the way, just the 35-year-olds that put Joe Biden in the White House. Uh, We actually know. I'm looking for this story just to make another point about what happened in the elections. And that's why I think they're not willing to give up this COVID stuff, because I really genuinely think their Hail Mary at the end of the day is going to be trying to get us back to a position of lockdowns to justify mail-in ballots. I'm looking for this story here. It happened in, uh, it was out of Missoula. So Montana went for pretty reliably for uh, for Republicans. I think that Donald Trump won Montana by something like 16 points or something like that. Where is this story? 
you know, I, I finally was able to get these articles printed. So I actually have my stack of stuff finally, which is a relief. But now I've got so many stories. I got overzealous because I finally could print and I was saying hallelujah. So I printed so much stuff. I actually am having a hard time uh, finding it. Well, I'll just kind of tell you from memory here, I guess, what took place. You know, basically there was a snafu in Missoula. So Missoula in Montana is is one of the few blue areas in Montana, right? The, the state overall is red. Obviously, like I just said, it went for Trump pretty overwhelmingly. But Missoula, which is a college town, uh, it's very, very blue in terms of, of the rest of the state in comparison to the rest of the state. Well, there was an issue where they 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 couldn't find or deliver the envelope. So everything was mail-in ballots in Montana, right? And so there was a discrepancy between the number of ballots cast and the envelopes that were that they had to be sent in. And of course, the envelopes are important because that's where you do the signature verification, the dates, everything else. That's what gives the ballot actual legitimacy. That's those those are the protections in place. Well, when they did a recount initially after the 2020 election, uh, the Republicans challenged it there. Well, there were something like four thousand missing envelopes. So either they got misplayed, they couldn't figure out what, so where are the envelopes? I mean, that's your security measure. And then somehow, miraculously, they were able to to deliver uh, these missing envelopes, I guess months later even. I don't have it in front, but the I guess I guess the point of the story there in Montana and Missoula, hold on, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find this. I'm going to find this story. I'm determined to find it. Hang on. All right. That's the sound of what I was looking for. All right. So here's the headline of that article. This is just important because Montana's a red state. And the point is, if this can happen in a blue area in a red state, imagine what happens in Democrat-controlled locations. If they can do this in just one place, Missoula, imagine what the rest of the country look like, the swing states, and so on and so forth. So uh, this is uh, in The Federalist, John Lott Jr., and he makes a great point that we should all be making, that I've been making, which is if we're going to avoid the type of debate that we saw after the November 3rd, 2020 election and restore confidence, then transparency is important. And you'll find as I read this, there's no transparency because, in fact, evidence was destroyed to prevent transparency, which, of course, leads to speculation of fraud. So as I was saying, Donald Trump won the state of Montana in 2020 by 16.4%. But there's an election transparency problem in Missoula County, which it's, it is, it's Montana's second most populous county. Beautiful area. The Bitterroot Valley there, by the way. I love Montana. I love that area. I love going fly fishing out there. It's, it's actually my favorite place in the entire world, bar none. Not Missoula necessarily, but the Bitterroot Valley in western Montana. So he goes on, if errors can occur in even relatively uncontested parts of the country, we should be broadly concerned. What went wrong? So last January 4th, there was a recount of the 2020 election in Missoula. It made national news because they found that 4,592 fewer envelopes than the county election office's tally of 72,491 votes. That's a 6.33% difference in votes counted. 
So the county's election was entirely mail-in. And envelopes were crucial for checking the dates and signatures, like I was saying. So they had 72,491 votes. Now, it's not talking about Republican or Democrat here. It's just saying there were 72,491 votes, but they were missing 4,592 envelopes. You're supposed to keep the envelopes and the ballots that are inside. So that's a big discrepancy. Now, he goes on. During that recount, the Missoula County Election Board provided 31 boxes of envelopes to be counted. On March 28th, in a count commissioned by the Missoula County Republicans, the count resulted in only 71 fewer envelopes than votes. So you understand what's happening? So initially, right, on January 4th, 2020, they looked into this and they were missing 4,592 envelopes, all right? And then on March 28th, a couple of months later, when they did a, uh, when they commissioned this recount, well, there were only 71 missing envelopes. So how is it possible that they suddenly found? That's the point, right? So why the difference, he asks. So for the March 28th count, the election board provided 33 boxes. Now remember, before, they only provided 31 boxes. So suddenly they found two extra boxes, two more than were provided in the first count. And there are affidavits for this as well, by the way. Um, so he goes on, he says, basically, so with a total of 67,899 envelopes in the January 4th recount, having them in 31 boxes would imply an average of 2,200 envelopes per box. So if you throw in two missing boxes, you get really close to that difference of 4,592 envelopes and the remaining difference of 71 envelopes. So how did this happen? Well, neither, he says, explanation for the discrepancy is good. It could mean that the election office is merely incompetent and lost track of two boxes. Well, that's not good. Gross incompetence, that doesn't give us any confidence in our elections if this type of thing can happen in a very relatively small county like this. With 33 boxes, you lose two. That does not inspire confidence. And the second option is that the two boxes of envelopes just magically materialized. Um, Rep. Brad uh, Sheeta, a Republican out of Helena, said the other alternative is that in the 15 months since January 4th, 2021, two extra boxes of counterfeit envelopes were generated deliberately by wrongdoers, right? To prove that there wasn't fraud. This was the thing. The Republicans base were saying, uh, we have an issue here. There's voter fraud because we're missing over 4,000 envelopes. Why are we missing 4,000 envelopes that provide security? Well, he's saying so that we didn't look into this, so they didn't get caught. Suddenly, two months later, they came up with these, these 4,000-something envelopes and produced them, procured them. So, well... It's required by law to have video cameras on the counting process, right? So it's crucial to watch the video that this county and that the county election office made of the envelope opening on election night. This was all videotaped, recorded. So we could just see what happened, right? That's why these videotapes are made, but there's a problem. Do you know what the problem is? The county erased the video. 
And it was a violation of the law, by the way. So Missoula County regulations call for all video records to be preserved for at least 60 days. Well, guess what? Uh, Only 42 days after the election, uh, this was requested, and it was discovered that this video was erased. And so without the video, there's no way to to determine how many envelopes were open. We can't get to the bottom of it. See the problem? And the other issue is, for example, in April of last year, after this came up, after this uh, original count by the Integrity Project that discovered these discrepancies, this problem, this probable fraud, well, the Montana Secretary of State, Christy Jacobson, well, she promised that her office was going to create new statewide requirements. So here's one thing she said she was going to do. She's going to, quote, protect the integrity of elections by enhancing election transparency through video requirements and retention. But now it's been a year, and guess what? There's been additional elections, and Jacobson's office has issued zero related requirements or further statements. So they just come out and they act like they're going to do something, but they didn't change anything at all. They want this to be able to take place. So anyway, this is this is part of the problem. Um, but I wanted to point that out because, you know, this person made the point on this Meet the Press show that, well, you know, all, this demographic helped elect Biden. Well, it wasn't just that demographic. It's not that easy because we know the mail-in ballots were the greatest source of fraud. It was the least free and fair election we've ever had in our country, despite the lies from the left. So anyway, they're worried about the poll numbers, right? What are they going to do? There's another thing that they talked about on this, and that's the fact that in Nevada, now Nevada is a state that has voted for four Democrat uh, presidents in a row, I believe. Let's see. Democrat candidate four times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Biden won Nevada. I think think that's true. I think Nevada's been uh, firmly Democrat for a long time. And here's the issue. So the Democratic incumbent there, Steve Sisolak, I don't know if I pronounce his name right, Sisolak, well, he's the governor of Nevada. So he and Democratic incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, well, guess what? In recent polls, they're both behind trailing their potential Republican opponents right now, as it is. So that freaks them out. And Todd notes, when you look at the Nevada electorate, this is pieces of the coalition you see fraying away from Biden. Here's the thing. I don't think, I think that because of what happened in 2020 with the elections that we can't trust, 81 million votes, right? More votes ever for Joe Biden via mail-in ballots. I think that this existed back in 2020. I think that what the Democrats have done since then, Joe Biden's done, he's definitely done more harm to the Democrat Party. But I'm saying your baseline of understanding how unpopular the Democrat Party is, well, it's kind of hard to determine. It's kind of hard to determine because of the way the elections were conducted. I mean, this is bad news, but I'm just saying for a lot of Americans out there were saying, holy cow, like... I just I just think that this country is more conservative than people think. I think that Trump was more effective. I mean, look, the guy got, what, 10, 12? I forget how many million more votes in 2020 than he did in 2016. Trump, I'm saying. I mean, he, he did grow his base. And so I think that because of the way they conducted 2020, the way that January 6th was permitted to happen, that the Democrats created that situation, 
opened the doors for those people, created this whole January 6th narrative so that we never would talk about the voter fraud. And so I think that this is reason to be optimistic in the country is what I'm trying to say. Because I think that in 2020, the country was more conservative than we've been led to believe because, of course, Joe Biden, quote, air marks here, won. And so anyway, now we're looking at this. I mean, if this is the case, look, look, if, if, if Joe Biden got 81 million votes and just in a year, a little over a year, he's done so much damage to the Democrat Party that this is taking place, then it's really hopeless for the Democrats. Really hopeless. I mean, this is, this is huge. So uh, I'll give you an example. So 72% of Nevadans rated economic conditions fair or poor. Now remember, 82% of the public thinks the economy is only fair or poor. But uh, in Nevada here, if I'm a Democrat, well, there's a silver lining for you. The whole country, 82%, but you've got 10% uh, more Nevadans who actually think the uh, economy's uh, rip-roaring, going swell. But they're really worried about the Hispanic voters. That's really their fear because you know what happened? Among Hispanic voters... Biden's approval rating went from 73% a year ago to 52% now. And so you can't just read that if you're a Democrat candidate and not have your eyes bulge. So that's what's going on there. Um, I got a lot of stacks here. I've got China-U.S. corruption. I got uh, Durham probe and Hunter Biden. Uh, I want to finish with Twitter, though, because this Twitter thing is bizarre to me. And, you know, only one in five Americans even use Twitter. So it's not like it's this huge platform used by, by every American, right? I mean, it's hard to examine because on the one hand, Twitter's not really important. It's not the real world. You've got bots on there. But it's an ideological war we're talking about here. This, this Elon Musk... The way they're reacting to this, this insane reaction from Twitter employees is really telling about who the left is and these Twitter employees. There's a lot to learn here. I think that, um, well, let me just go through this first so you can understand who these Twitter employees are. I think they get their identity from being bullies. Their whole identity, look, these are people whose only skill set is working on software, creating algorithms. I mean, these are these are a bunch of nerds. And I, I don't say that with any kind of derision, really, but I'm just telling you, these are a bunch of nerds. That's what they do for... Their job is to, to create the structure for this communications platform. And what kind of communications platform wants to eliminate half of your platform? Half of your base. Anybody who's conservative or has an opinion that doesn't go along with a Democrat narrative, you're just going to, you're going to, uh, you know, squash those voices. And, and Twitter's not a profitable company. It's never been really a profitable company. I mean, if you look at the grand scheme in the Silicon Valley, Twitter's always lagged behind. It's always been a mess. But what do you expect when you have a communication platform that promotes censorship, stands for censorship, whose identity is based on censorship? It's, it's an insane prospect. So 78% of Twitter employees polled here say, this from the New York Post, Theo Waite wrote it, Twitter employees slam a-hole Elon Musk, ask whether he's manipulating stock. Anyway, 78% of these employees say they 
say Musk doesn't have the best interests of Twitter and its shareholders in mind. Which is absolutely nuts, by the way. Because what did he want to buy the company for? 40, what is that, $43 billion? It was well above. Well, he offered $54.20 a share, which was a 54% premium over the share price the day before he invested in the company. The highest value Twitter ever had was $73 a share, and that was a long time ago. Right now, it's, it's around $45, and he offered $54.20, which is wild. And these Twitter employees, by the way, ideologically, look, don't mistake me, listen to my whole sentence here, but ideologically, I mean, they're like jihadists. I mean, those people were willing to uh, blow themselves up in suicide vests for their ideological cause, right? In service of their goal. And look, ideologically, I'm talking about with these Twitter employees, it's the same. They're willing, they talk about this poison pill, right? <clears throat> you know, this, this board unanimously voted to swallow this poison pill, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to tank the value of the social media giant shares rather than allow billionaire Elon Musk to buy the company. So they're willing to destroy Twitter, destroy its value, destroy its shares, rather than sell to Elon Musk. But the point is, they've been wanting, desperate for a buyer for a long, long time. If I go back to September 14th, 2016, I've got an article here that says, who will buy Twitter? We ranked all the possible buyers. Look, the board back under, what's the guy's name? The guy who looked like uh, Rasputin. It'll come to me. I know it starts with a D. Uh, Dorsey? Yeah, Jack Dorsey. So when Jack Dorsey was around, the Twitter board was, was really desperate looking for a sale. They were looking at possible suitors like Google and Salesforce, other tech companies. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, I'm not going to get into the arguments this, this place, but Google, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Verizon, Comcast, Disney, Chinese companies coming in and buying Salesforce, private equity. So they wanted a buyer. And look, if Jeff Bezos wanted to buy Twitter, do you think they'd be reacting this way? Of course not. Because ideologically, as long as somebody's for censorship, that's fine. They wouldn't have a problem with, uh, what's her name? Lorraine Powell. Lorraine Powell. Lorraine Powell. Jobs, Steve Jobs' uh, widow, who what owns the Atlantic or one of those left wing? Well, she owns a couple or, or is a partial stockholder in some of them, partial owner. But anyway, my point is, they don't. They, they wanted to sell the company, just not to Elon Musk. And what does Elon Musk want to do? He wants to return the platform to a free speech platform that doesn't censor. That's what these people are outraged by, and they bought into this lie. I mean, they're justifying their insane behavior. And I've got a story coming up, too, about Easter we just had and how the left reacted to that. I mean, these are the most amoral people ever. They were so intolerant. So intolerant. So here's some pull quotes. So one employee wrote, don't want him as CEO. They're talking about Elon Musk. He has no compassion. No compassion? What, what compassion do these Twitter employees have who celebrate and are giddy over the power they have to wield over... Look... Social media is important to a lot of people's businesses to get your brand out there. Look, they kick Trump off. They kick Marjorie Taylor Greene, her private account off at least. So many people they've kicked off or suspended. And it's a bullying platform and these people get excited about it. He has no compassion, they say. These people need to look in the mirror. 
I'm not convinced he's in the best place mentally, another employee said. Another, a third labeled Elon Musk a dangerously insane oligarch. So, I mean, I, I, the only truthful thing I read of any of these comments by Twitter employees, by the way, was this one. Elon's vision and Twitter don't align. Well, that's true because Elon's vision is free speech and Twitter's vision and their employees currently is censorship. Imagine if, imagine if, uh, I don't know, it's hard to reverse engineer here because we've gotten so used to the idea of the left controlling social media and the tech empire. But I mean, obviously, just imagine, you know, if, if, if Twitter, you know, was the other way around and we were just kicking off Biden, kicking off leftists who were uh, saying the vaccine, for example, created immunity and we kicked them off. Misinformation. And this is the thing. They justify their evil. They justify their amorality with this kind of nonsense. Oh, they're mentally ill. You know, they always say they're trying to protect democracy, by the way, don't they? But they're not. It's always the opposite. But anyway, all these all these bun-headed, tatted nerds, uh, they hate free speech. And this is the thing. It exposes how hateful they are. They hate other people. They're vicious. They're mean. Their whole culture is a celebration of censorship, a celebration of kicking somebody off the platform, of punishing political opponents, of doing the... It's a club. It's a club, and they don't want Elon Musk to come in and ruin their identity because their whole purpose in life is built around this leftist ideology to make things unfair for the right, for conservatives, to punish them. That's what their identity is. And and without that, they don't have a reason to live. They don't have a reason to live. They'd rather leave Twitter, they'd rather ruin Twitter than open that platform back up to Donald Trump or other conservatives. But here here we go, for example. So there's a great article. Jonathan Turley wrote it. It said, Twitter faces the nightmare of being forced into free speech. Exactly right. That's the nightmare for the left. The worst thing that can happen to them is free speech. And this is more than just Twitter. It's not just about Twitter. They, they can't even they can't even stand the prospect of losing one platform to free speech. They can't tolerate it. And also, I think there's something psychological out there because look, everyone is aware, even if you're not on Twitter, you understand they kicked off Trump and so on and so forth. So it has a psychological impact that ju- does reverberate beyond the Twitter world outside if you read the newspapers and things like that or any kind of online media and you understand that conservatives are under attack, attack that it's always a possibility for us to be put down. And so it creates this world of self-censorship. So that makes their job even easier because... By censoring other people, by sending a signal out there that it's dangerous to be a conservative, well, we don't even give them a problem anymore. We just become silent. We do it ourselves. But, you know, there was a funny story. I don't know if you heard this one, too. You know, Twitter, there's this group out there called Libs of TikTok, and and this person's great. Basically, they take videos of liberals that post... So they take videos posted by liberals on TikTok and then put them on Twitter. They don't change anything. They just let the liberals speak for themselves. They do this all the time with these weird elementary school teachers who are celebrating teaching kindergartners about pronouns, encouraging them to become, you know, gay, lesbian, whatever. Groom them, right? 
So anyway, Twitter suspended this group, Libs of TikTok, for hateful conduct, and the conduct was reposting what liberals have said about themselves. That's how stupid Twitter is. How dumb their rules are. And furthermore, you know, <clears throat> well, whatever. You know, you know the, the, the guy named Parag Agrawal, the CEO that replaced Jack Dorsey, I mean, he's come out, this is no surprise, he came out and said, I think he was asked, uh, you know, about protecting free speech, and um, he said that the company's not to be bound by the First Amendment. He, 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 he's, he, you know, he wants to regulate content as reflective of things that we believe lead to a healthier public conversation. And this is dictator speech, speak 101, right? They're going to they're gonna protect democracy by, you know, uh, telling us what we can and can't say, what we can and can't hear. So they're not worried about free speech. It's uh, what their role is in shaping, you know, what the reality is. And that's the blow. That's what they can't tolerate. So anyway, where is this? Uh, I want to read you a couple of pull quotes here from. So uh, Robert Reich, he's about four foot 11, I believe. He's a columnist out there. Not a very bright guy. And in fact, he's, he's, he's a, well, you know, he's, he's, he's dumb. He's dumb, but, and he's a liar. <clears throat> but anyway, he's also former Clinton labor s- secretary. So he explains freed, why freedom is tyranny. Have you ever ser- heard such a thing in your life? Freedom is actually tyranny. Look at these this wordplay by the left. It's impossible to live in their reality. So censorship to Robert Reich is necessary to protect American democracy. That's a quote. And so he says, uh, that's Musk's dream and Trump's and Putin's and the dream of every dictator, strongman, demagogue, and modern-day robber baron on earth. For the rest of us, it would be a brave new nightmare. Does anyone understand that? Is that not so backwards and insane? So, free speech is the dream of every dictator. (laughs) Am I getting that right, Robert Reich? That's right. Hitler was a big proponent of uh, free speech, right? Xi in China there, big proponent of free speech. The more you open up free speech, the happier the dictator is. What a crock of crap. But there's a, uh, there's a uh, representative, a Democrat out of Pennsylvania, Madeline Dean. Well, she agreed with uh, MSNBC analyst John Heileman that said that Democrats have to scare the crap out of voters and get them to come out. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I was alluding to earlier in the show, right there. They've got to scare the crap out of voters and get them to come out. So it doesn't matter that the narrative's a lie. It's just about creating fear. And that's what they did with Trump, right? I mean, he didn't represent any of those things, but they, they compared him to Hitler, Mussolini. He was a dictator. Now, they're the dictators, But they've got to scare people that whatever the alternative is out there is so much worse that you vote for them. And and I mean, the irony, it's it's great because the United States, do you know that we actually rank last in media trust among 46 nations? Trust in the media right now is at a record low with only 7% expressing great trust in what is being reported. But I'm sure, I'm sure Chuck Todd can't understand why, can't fathom why that's the case. But there we are. Censorship is necessary to protect American democracy. You know where you hear this, the communist Chinese? And people that celebrate dictatorships, they say, you know, 
Taking away certain freedoms is important for stability in a country. It's like these Trudeau types, Biden types, you know, our, our democracy, our, our, our republic, you know, it's really messy. If we could just, if, if people wouldn't put up a fight, if Republicans wouldn't stand in our way, if we didn't have this, these checks and balances, if I could just be a dictator, things would just be great. If the American people would just do exactly as I say, <clears throat> everything would be a-okay, fantastic, but unfortunately, people think for themselves, they have freedom, and this is really just messing up my plans to run their lives for them. That's how these people think. I was going to tell you more about how these people think about Easter because I'm a Christian. I celebrated Easter. Uh, he is risen and we are saved. You know, I mean, that, this is the belief of the Christian, right? We believe in something else. Now, communism, these dictatorships, right? <clears throat> the first thing they try to attack is religion. You can't have religion. You just can't have it. Um, and have uh, dictatorship tyranny. Now, this is fascinating. The New York Times wrote a, a, an op-ed by this guy named Shalom Oslander. So he's some kind of a bitter former Jew. I think he's given up on religion. He hates religion. I, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But now, of course, he's some kind of atheist, I suppose. And he wants to tell all of us that we need to be atheists and that we're evil for believing in things, despite us not having this terrible experience like he does. And this is the thing. <clears throat> uniformity. We all have to be like these people. They don't respect our religion, but they have their religion of their own, which is believing in nothing. Atheism, believing in the state. So all this separation of church and state garbage, you know, whatever, the state believes itself to be religion. That, that's where this goes in the end. They want to be worshipped. They want to be the final authority on everything. So this guy says in his op-ed, amongst other things, uh, he says that... Uh, now is, well, he says, in this time of war and violence, of oppression and suffering, I propose we pass over something else, God. Perhaps now is a good time to teach our children to pass over God to be as unlike him as possible. <clears throat> That's the Times message, right, for Passover and Easter. If you're Jewish, Christian, whatever. Killing gods is an idea I can get behind, he says in his article. So I, I, this is great. This is great. Stick with me for this. So we call it a deicide, right? Getting, killing the gods. So he says in the article, this year at the end of the Seder, let's indeed throw our doors open to strangers, to people who aren't our own, to the terrifying them, to the evil others, those people who seem so different from us, those we think are our enemies or who think us theirs, but who, if they sat down around the table with us, we'd no doubt find despise the pharaohs of this world as much as we do and who dream of the same damn thing as us all. Peace. Uh, how wonderful. The leftist fantasy there. Yes, we all dream of peace. Now, let's see him sit down with a conservative, huh? With Trump? How about with me? As he says, yes, let's throw our doors open to strangers. Which kind of strangers? No, no. I, and I'm very serious. Do you, do you remember, by the way, is he sitting here giving this pipe dream, the leftist fantasy that they don't mean at all? Back in 2013, this is the first time this really became a thing, and it's been a thing annually with Democrats ever since, I believe. But remember the Obama's Thanksgiving message? You know, he, he wanted us to, he wanted Democrats to talk about o Obamacare to their relatives, conservative relatives. The New York Times, LA Times, they had these, these articles out there that were giving talking points about how to convince, you know, 
your relative who might not be an Obama supporter to come on board of the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act. Audacious, audacious. But of course, if, you know, if, if Trump had come out and made some, some claim like that, you know, this is a time to get together with your Democrat relatives and explain to them the, they, they would say, dictator, 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 I mean, which they were already saying. Anyway, that's what they would say. And then my favorite, though, I was looking this up, 2019, I remember. So the nation <clears throat> had this headline. It said, this Thanksgiving, it's time to take on your conservative relatives. Other people will tell you how to avoid fights. I'm going to tell you how to get into them. And then you have this liar, Oslander, <laughs> this year. Yeah, let's open the doors to strangers. Yeah, okay. Yep. Twitter employees, right? They're all, they're all, they're all reading this, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's open our doors to strangers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's sit down and talk. Let's not look at them as enemies. As they walk out the doors of Twitter, bring the company to its knees, if they allow free speech to prevail, if they allow people to actually have a voice that differs from theirs, Unbelievable. These atheist regimes around the world that this guy's a proponent of, um, these are the very places that lead to these uh, racially, ethnically, uh, well, they're brutal to people who are different. I mean, these atheist regimes, I mean, they're in recent history. And, you know, Christianity's been under attack for a long time, and, and that's that's the target of the times here. And that's the target of the left in general. You can't have Christianity and religion coexisting with a, a tyrannical regime. So they have to eliminate dissent, and they have to create an authoritarian state in which the reality is determined by what? The authorities. Not by God, not by our understanding of morality because of religion. This is what totalitarian states have done throughout the 20th century. They've been atheists, and that's not an accident. That's the point he makes in this article, too. I mean, not him, but Robert Spencer writes a great write-up of this, and the headline of this is, Leading into Passover and Easter weekend, the New York Times calls on readers to kill God. And he makes some of these great points that I was thinking about over the weekend, too. You know, our morality comes from the Judeo-Christian background. You can't have morality and stand for censorship, for example. Or treat people like the left does. Talk about people that way. You can't do it. This intolerance that they have. And you know, intolerance in itself isn't a bad thing if you're intolerant towards murder, intolerant towards criminality, intolerant towards teachers wanting to teach your five-year-old about sex. We should be intolerant of that. And that's why we're in this position we're in. We've been too tolerant of all of it. But anyway, uh, Spencer, I just want to make one point. He he says here, you know, the elimination of dissent has already begun. You know, the dissent that leads to these, uh, well, the elimination of it, which leads to these totalitarian regimes. We got the transgender madness, he points out. We got people affirming that men, um, you know, can become women. And, you know, we're not allowed to say that anymore. We're punished and vilified if you believe in two sexes. And, you know, the, the traditional religions and everything are under attack. Anyway, it's crazy. But the, the point is all this. When the, we see these attacks on religion and Christianity, you know, it's, 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 a, it's in favor of statism and authoritarianism. And Shalom Oslander is all for this. All for this. 
And then Ilhan Omar, by the way, talk about somebody who's just an ungrateful individual who's come over here. You know, there was a, there was a, I think it was a easy jet flight and you had this video posted of this group called Kingdom Realm Ministries. Anyway, they're on this plane. The caption of the video is worshiping Jesus 30,000 feet in the air. And anyway, these people are like praising Jesus, singing songs on this plane in the air. And, uh, and, and Ilhan Omar, Omar tweeted out on top of the video. I think my family and I should have a prayer session next time I am on a plane. How do you think it will end? The Muslim squad member wrote, what a joke. Muslims do pray in public. And in fact, there are airlines, as many have pointed out, Qatar, a country that she's familiar with. Well, they play Islamic prayers on the intercom before they take off on their planes. They've got uh, designated prayer areas for the Muslim passengers that frequent those flights. Coordinates of Mecca are on the screens. It's not a problem, but she hates Christians. She hates Jews. That's the thing. I mean, what an ungrateful person to post something like that. I mean, she's just so hateful. Somebody's worshiping Jesus and she has to go there and say, imagine if th- it does happen and nothing happens. I mean, honestly, if we wanted to go into the uh, <clears throat> the ditch here, the gutter, I'd love to see a, a prayer session by Muslims on a plane instead of what happened on 9-11, for example. Hey, let's go. All right, this is Drew Allen. I'm going to be right back to finish off. Hey, let's go brand it. Pandemic ain't real, they just plan it. Hey, hey, let's go brand it. When you ask questions, they start banning. Hey, hey, let's go brand it. Hey, hey, let's go brand it. Hey, hey, let's go brand it. That was the, uh, of course, the Bryson Gray song, the rap. Let's go Brandon. That's, that's the song that replaced, if you remember last year, it booted Adele from iTunes' number one spot. And I had an article out in Human Events, that would be Ronald Reagan's favorite publication, uh, and the title of the op-ed I wrote was The Counterculture Movement is Here to Stay. You can go to my website, drewallen.substack.com, or you can go to Human Events and check it out. But, 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 but you know, my, my point is I'm talking about also how the music of our time is, is capturing the zeitgeist just as the music of the 60s and early 70s captured the zeitgeist of that counterculture movement. And there aren't any songs praising Joe Biden, praising inflation. They're all anti-Biden, anti-establishment. And the irony is, of course, those people like Neil Young, who once were icons of the counterculture movement, you know, that broad anti-establishment movement that, that you know, advocated for civil rights, free speech, protested against the Vietnam War. Well, now they are the establishment. Now they're advocating for censorship against civil rights. And they love the idea of going to war with Ukraine. And so I just think we're in the midst of a big movement here. It's very broad. It's uh, There's Democrats abandoning that party that are coming over here. <clears throat> and conservatism is the place to be. That ideology is on the rise. And people are realizing once again the benefits of that, of traditionalism, of Americanism, of... You know, after after seeing a party totally reject American values of what's happening at Disney, for example, of Twitter promoting censorship, of Democrats representing censorship, of Democrats who 
have no problem at all ushering in illegal immigrants at record numbers through our across our border. And this is a big thing, by the way. There's something... <clears throat> so, okay, a couple of things here. One point, you know, next month, you know, they, the Biden regime announced they're going to lift Title 42, right? That's, that's that health code, essentially, to simplify things um, that is allowing for border states to theoretically send people back, keep them out of the United States because of the COVID emergency, the health threat that it poses. Now, it's it's been more or less not really enacted, used much. It really hasn't stopped too much. But, but now that they've announced they're lifting it, you know, everyone's saying, well, now we're going to have a big surge. There's nothing to deter illegal immigrants. They're giving them free uh, smartphones, and now Title 42 is being lifted. But they can't even wait until next month for Title 42 to officially be lifted. The Biden regime sent a memo to Border Patrol and they made exceptions. So basically they're saying, well, you know, Title 42 is not lifting till next month. But that said, you can come across anyway. That's what it amounts to. I mean, they're saying if you're a pregnant illegal coming across the border, they love that, right? Bring them over, give birth, make that kid American, bring the family over, make them American, new voters to replace all the Hispanics that are flocking to the Republican Party. But yeah, so, so you know, they'll let in illegals if they, if they deem them to have, uh, have a physical or mental illness. Great. Let's bring in mentally ill illegal immigrants. That's just what America needs because we don't have enough mental illness in America today, as we just witnessed with that deranged lunatic who shot up people on the subway or the Waukesha massacre of the black BLM activists who ran over people in the streets. I mean, we don't have enough of this, do we? So if they don't have access to safe housing or shelter in Mexico, which Mexico's not accepting them, they did away with the the uh, return to Mexico or whatever that policy, Trump era policy was called, stay in Mexico. Remain in Mexico is what it was called. So basically they're saying, everyone, come on over. Don't wait until till, uh, Title 42. And of course, I mean, the lifting of Title 42 is the Democrats saying COVID's over. And yet you've still got Fauci and Democrats going out there saying, don't get too comfortable because a new strain could come up at any moment and we might have to lock down again. That's basically what they're signaling. And that is their, their safety plan going into the midterms. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. They know that this isn't popular. I mean, here they are saying COVID's over. Title 42 is going away. All illegals are welcome with COVID or not. Officially, that's what that means. They've been doing that all along anyway. But okay, come on in. COVID's over, but they want us to continue wearing masks on planes and public transportation. Now, I'll tell you why they want the masks on public transportation and planes, why they fought so hard for that. Because everyone travels. And a lot of people still use planes, for example. And so even if you're at home in a red state or Florida or somewhere else, if you're in in a place, which is most places now, and you don't have mass mandates, people are feeling free. They're feeling like their liberties are back. They're feeling like the pandemic's over. And so at least if they had those masks in place on airplanes or public transportation, they could keep the fear alive. Keep the threat alive because it's very hard to go from no masks, the pandemic's over, and ramp up immediately and go back into 15 days to slow the spread because no one's going to do that again. But if they keep the masks in play, it's a shorter step, right? It's the in-between between, you know, COVID's over, wear masks to be safe. Okay, now we got to lock down. So it's easier to go from 
mask mandates to lockdowns than it is to go from no masks, everything's normal, back to lockdowns again, if they need be. I'm just telling you how these people think. Nothing is off the table for them. And did you see Biden, by the way, last, uh, was it last Thursday, shaking a ghost's hand? He was uh, at North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University, I believe. It's in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he literally turns around after he finishes speaking, mumbling through his speech, and he shakes thin air. And he starts mumbling to himself. And it's so nuts. If you ever, if you did, if you believe fact checkers existed to actually check facts, well, now you can get rid of that finally. Fact checkers had to come in and try and claim that Biden wasn't shaking hands with, a, with thin air. Yeah, yeah, don't believe your lying eyes again. He wasn't shaking. No, no, he was gesturing at people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because everyone knows, you know, sticking out your hand and shaking thin air, that's just a gesture to somebody else, right? But his, uh, his approval's down to 26% amongst Hispanic voters, the second largest voting bloc. And this is the thing, the thing about Hispanics. They're Catholic, mainly. They're religious. They're conservative. They have family values. They're not down for the indoctrination, not down for this Disney crap, not down for this grooming of kindergartners to third graders. And Biden's importing crime and poverty, cartels. And imagine that. Shocking, right? Immigrants who were here to better their lives, who fled hellholes, now are finding that the Democrats are creating a hellhole. Inflation is hurting their chances. New surges of immigration and crime are affecting not only their safety, but their options and opportunities for success in this country. And these people are fighting. It's like the Cubans who fled in Florida and are conservatives voting for Republicans because they've been there, done that, and they see what's happening. And the Democrats aren't going get, to get away with it much longer. So that's why they need new brown people to replace the old brown people so they can have new voters. Well, I'll end with this. China-U.S. corruption. So, obviously, we have the, everyone knows, I've talked about it a million times, you're probably familiar with it. I'm not going to get into the weeds again with a Hunter Biden's uh, abandoned laptop. It revealed a lot of information, but extensively, it showed and raised questions about President Biden, his involvement in his son's nefarious business activities, foreign government's covert influence on Americans, especially prominent ones, who are the sons of politicians, for example. And there's an article here in The Federalist by Helen Rowley. It's great. It's great. And she says, no government has conducted such influence campaigns more effectively than communist China. And to understand what's going on goes back to the 1930s. That's when the Chinese Communist Party established the UFWD. Now, this is, it stands for the United Front Work Department, or United Front for short, and in the 30s, they were aiming to recruit famous intellectuals, writers, teachers, students, publishers, business leaders, and they didn't have to be communists. But the recruits, of course, promoted the CCP's agenda. They influenced public opinion in favor of the CCP. All right, so they were a pro-communist Chinese party. And Mao Zedong, for example, he called the United Front a magic weapon for the CCP. Indeed, and it, it is more pervasive and stronger than it's ever been before. As a matter of fact, when Xi Jinping came to power in late 2012, he expanded the UFWD. He elevated the status. He put a Politburo member, Ms. Soon Chulan, as the head of the UFWD. And they've got headquarters in Beijing, some unmarked, heavily guarded building next to the CCP's leadership compound. 
And they assign these workers to government branches inside and outside China, all Chinese embassies. And one of the things they do, for example, is uh, <clears throat> they have these overseas influence campaigns, right? And one of the primary means of uh, attack here is establishing these Confucius Institutes. The Confucius Institutes, by the way, there's now about 50 in the U.S., but there were 100. And there's more than 9 million students enrolled in these Confucius Institutes. Now, these are this is China's Trojan horse, right? They're at universities like Stanford and Columbia. The University of Chicago shut it down because a bunch of professors petitioned and called it ap- academic malware. And that's what they do. They... They downplay, for example, the uh, Tiananmen uh, Square massacre. They downplay the threat of the communist Chinese. They talk up their philosophy and try and build, uh, you know, American sympathizers to the communist cause. And that's why they call it academic malware. That's what it is. But that's what all of our institutions have become. Even if the communist Chinese aren't associated, the Democrats are responsible for the same thing. Academic malware. Indoctrination. But anyway, these friends, the UFWD folks, you know, they approach and cultivate friends, right? And so they know how to make people feel important. Wine and dine people, excessive flattery, lavish trips to China. You know, those things that appeal to people who are weak, who don't have a strong moral foundation. So they give them access to high-level Chinese officials, make them feel important. They bribe them, give them preferential, preferential business terms. That's Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, exactly what they did. But what's fascinating is, um, Henry Kissinger, remember him? He was the former national security advisor and secretary of state under uh, presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. Well, he retired, of course, from government posts long ago, and Kissinger was a big guy, right? Really important in terms of, uh, of uh, you know, you know, secretary of state type things. Uh, he was national security advisor. Uh, I mean, he played a very prominent role in American politics. He was very esteemed. And so the communists went after him. And they've noticed Kissinger, by the way, he's been actively dampening criticism of the Chinese Communist Party amongst his massive network. So, for example, Kissinger, he told George H.W. Bush, that would be the one that followed after Ronald Reagan, not George W., George H.W., the one-termer, read my lips, no new taxes. Well, He is the one who told George H.W. Bush, that administration, to take a lighter response to the June 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre. Apparently, he's the one who also convinced the Trump administration not to meet with the Dalai Lama, by the way. That had a lot of blowback. That was bad. That was bad. Because, you know, Trump was the first president since Reagan not to meet with with the uh, spiritual leader, the Tibetan spiritual leader. But here's a few names for you. So uh, Chinese companies, including large state-owned enterprises such as the Bank of China, well, guess what? They funded 80% of the Bohai Harvest RST investment fund. Guess what? Guess who the partial owners of that, of that company were? Hunter Biden and Chris Hines. Chris Hines, that's right. The stepson of former Secretary of State John Kerry through their private equity fund, Rosemont Seneca Partners. Do you see the Chinese influence all around us? Influence our government? In addition to them being tyrants, this is why they're working in favor of the communist Chinese, creating policies favorable, being soft on China, helping them while weakening America. They're doing the bidding of China because China owns them. China has bribed them. 
For example, the Chinese government, this is out of the laptop, right? They approved, the, the Chinese government authorities, that is, they approved the deal to establish the fund, this fund I just mentioned. Guess when it took place? After Hunter Biden traveled to China, made that infamous trip with then-Vice President Joe Biden in 2013. So they want to influence the United States, the children of two of the most influential or prominent officials in the Obama administration. And it paid off because then in 2015, the fund played a crucial role in securing approval by the Obama administration and the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States for the sale of the Michigan-based Hinegas Automotive to one of China's leading military aircraft makers. But they're also involved in Wall Street. They've taken over Wall Street. For example, the China Sovereign Wealth Fund, China Investment Corp, CIC, they invested $3 billion in funding for Blackstone Group's initial public offering in 2007, and they approved BlackRock. You've heard BlackRock out there in the media everywhere. CEO of BlackRock is Larry Fink. He's a scoundrel. But the Chinese government approved BlackRock to start a private fund business in China in 2017. They're all owned by China. Same with the NBA, by the way. But it's, just, it's such a corrupt operation. And, you know, this is why you have, for example, the, 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 they're going for the sports, right? So 800 million people in China tune into NBA games. That's more than twice the population of the United States. And remember Daryl Morey. Remember him? He sent that simple tweet, fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. And then he got attacked. He was the GM of what team? The Rockets, I want to say. You remember this. But anyway, you just, you just you start digging deeper and deeper and you realize why things are so screwed up here. Brooklyn Nets owner, Joe Tsai. Well, he's worth $8.5 billion. He got most of his money from that Amazon-esque company, Alibaba, which is headquartered in China. And uh, he's one of the many owners in the NBA and other sports associations who've shown public support for protest movements that are critical of America's supposed human rights struggles, but at the same time he covers up, runs interference for, denies, and defends in many cases China's abysmal human rights record. Murdering people, work camps, the Uyghurs, the Uyghurs, however you like to say that term, tomato, tomato. It's insane. And what do these, what do these social justice movements in the United States do, right? They destroy the country. They rip it apart. Silent on China, though, because they pay him the big bucks. Um, I mean, this is, I mean, I, I just, I'm so sick of this. The Chinese government that does all these things, and we don't say a peep. Disney, Disney, right? Who is uh, protesting Texas, protesting Florida, who doesn't want five-year-olds to be taught about sex. The don't say gay bill they promote, which is not true at all. Meanwhile, their cruise ships dock in places that stone gays to death. So ridiculous. Such a, such a disgusting. But anyway, size company, the owner here I was just talking about, well, he funds a lot of companies that are developing the technology to track, record, and control China's inhabitants, right? And when you get into 5G and hear about that and all the conspiracy theories, you know, 5G is what they say is, is the technology necessary to implement all these 
surve- in, to, to implement the surveillance state. So that's why people are opposed to 5G, because 5G is what they have in China, and that's what allows them to surveil everyone, have the face recognition technology, and so on and so forth. But uh, Psy, for example, and this is reminiscent of things you hear from Democrats all the time. Here's a quote from him. He, he said this at the Milken Institute. In the American context, we talk about freedom of speech, freedom of the press. But in the China context, being able to restrict some of those freedoms is an important element to keep the stability. That's what I was referring to before. My brain's on fire, baby. So they praise China. Look how great it is over there when you don't have free speech and freedoms. Here it's a problem, and that's what the Twitter employees believe, right? Censorship. They're, they're creating a better world by eliminating free speech. Little four foot eleven Robert Reich. You know, freedom is tyranny or whatever he says. But it goes deeper than that. You know, Miami Heat owner Mickey, Ar- uh, Mickey Arison. You know, he's celebrating this Juneteenth crap, our pledge for social justice, but he has no problem with what's happening in China. He's on the China money train, that gravy train. Sits on the sideline about China's human rights offenses. Same with LeBron James. I mean, Hollywood's the same way. They've been making movies that cater to a Chinese audience for a long time. And you'll never forget when John Cena went over to promote one of his movies in China. And somehow he alluded to the fact that, you know, I think he said, what do you say, Taiwan was its own country? And immediately he got on the air and in Mandarin said he, he was uh, uh, apologized, he didn't mean it. I mean, that's the power of the Chinese and their influence in America. And that's what's going on here. We've got to get to the bottom of this because it's not just Joe Biden, Hunter Biden. It's other Democrats. It's other Republican politicians, too. I'm certain of it. But this is the assault on our culture. And, you know, they're sitting here saying, you know, uh, the Twitter employees, right, saying that Elon Musk is represents some kind of dangerous oligarch in America because he wants to privatize Twitter, buy Twitter, and restore freedom of speech. But these are the oligarchs. Maury, Psy, all these, all these business owners, all these billionaires in America, the BlackRock guy, Fink, these are the oligarchs that control everything. So anyway, I didn't have time to get to Abbott and what's going on in Texas and what all that hubbub's about, but I'll get to, I'll get to that soon. I'll get to that next uh, but I talked to a guy on the phone today. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps, and he's got a book coming out I'll talk about more soon. I'm, I haven't read it yet. I'll read it, and I'll talk to you about it. But uh, he's very, very worried about what he sees in the military, and he wrote a book about it, and he's going to come out hard, and he's brave, and he's joining the ranks of other people who are speaking out, but he's terrified of what's, what he sees taking place. He knows what China's up to. He knows what they want to do. They want to supplant the United States, and he sees our military, and one thing he said to me, he said, Drew... <clears throat> I wish you could see the morale in the military. It is at an all-time low. These people just want to get out. We are not prepared for conflict if it comes. That's the dirty secret. That's the reality. It's not just we don't have the stomach for war anymore. It's we don't have the personnel anymore. We don't have the morale anymore. We don't have the soldiers that are prepared for battle. And China, I mean, we're getting to a point where You know, we had the greatest military in the world. It should be a deterrent to China and the rest of the world. We should be protecting everyone through strength, peace through strength. And we're we're putting our military in a place like it's pre-World War II. We'd have to ramp up. It'd be too late to catch up. That's where this is going, economically and everything else. And uh, China's behind a lot of this. Anyway, this is Drew Allen. God bless you all. Until next time.